I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Welcome to Sports Lit. Today we go off the beaten path, a place I enjoy trekking, as does our guest, Phil Lind, the Vice Chair of Rogers Communications Incorporated. He helped build this company from the ground up with CEO Ted Rogers beginning when he joined the, the corporation in 1969. Today we know the company is a behemoth, along with Bell and perhaps TELUS, but as we find out in his new book, Right Hand Man, written along with Bob Braille, there are many parallels, a word um, I'm sure we'll use often today, with the early days of this company and the Wild West backdrop we're familiar with when it comes to thinking about tech startups. So what's his relationship with sports? Well, uh, where do we start? Rogers, of course, owns the Blue Jays, Nate. And then, um, of course, don't forget the national rights to air hockey, including the crown jewel of Canadian sports broadcasting properties, Hockey Night in Canada. And I think they also own the naming rights to several stadiums. Yeah, yeah. Rogers Arena, Rogers Place, Rogers Centre. There used to be the Rogers K-Rock Centre in Kingston. It's now the Leon Centre, but... Yeah, well, they lost all... that one. We'll find it. We'll get to the bottom of how they lost the naming <laughs> yeah, rights. Yeah, that was the it. big. That was the big one. There. <laughs> um, Rogers also created the ill-fated Bills in Toronto series, um, and Phil has been there the entire time, behind the scenes and sometimes in front of the camera for these developments. In 2002, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and in 2012, inducted into the U.S. Cable Hall of Fame, the third Canadian to be bestowed with that honor. Today, we welcome him to Sports Lit, along with award-winning journalist Bob Braille, and they're going to discuss discuss the book, sports, and, of course, the business of sport. Nate? Yes, and eager to get in, into this. Uh, you know, part of the power of memoir, whether it's, you know, a scientist, a business executive, a celebrity, an athlete, is, you know, it, it, you just, it brings you closer to understanding someone who, you know, just rolls with a, a different crowd than you do. You get an idea of their, you know, needs and their obligations and, and sort of, you know, how they, you know, concentrate the idea you know the ideas that you know are within them you know some days it feels like you know we're losing ground on that front as a species you know i think you know in terms of how memoir works and the power of it i think the triumph of narrative by robert fulford is a great book uh phil lind is you know what one of the my influencers of my early years the novelist wp peart would simply call a heavy hitter no exposition needed you know that makes him i guess a bit of a heavy you know in you know in plotting terms to sports fans you know you know rogers and the jays i mean you know there's still people who chafe chafe a little bit at how intertwined you know corporate and the sport sports side of that are there was you know the bills in toronto series you know which is, is something he writes about and and i guess wears to this day uh i guess those are our primary points of reference for phil and we didn't i didn't know too much else about him other than you know big executive guy but there's a lot more of phil as he reveals then being a business person you know big supporter of the arts he writes in, in the book he touches on his early life and how you know he was able to sort of get in the door but it took him a while to figure out where he f fit in the grand scheme but he ended up being you know part of this you know the build-up of this huge company and obviously he talks about something else that is you know defining a major health crisis that was having a, a stroke in 1998 you know when he was 54 years old uh and i mean you, there's a lot of inside baseball in this book uh you know we talked you know some the deal making that took rogers from this small company to this i guess five platform hydra or is it seven or eight platforms <laughs> now uh you can learn definitely a lot about organizing organizational behavior and i guess 
you know, the, the art of the deal from Phil and Robert Braille's narrative. You know, it's not just about saying, hey, we're a company with a lot of money and we're going to do this. You have to, you know, you have to finesse, finesse things, you know, make everyone feel like they're getting 70% of the deal. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot that goes into, uh, you, know, you know, convincing the CRTC to amend broadcast policy. There were a lot of things, you know, I didn't know about how Roger, because it always felt like just one day, you know, all of a sudden Roger's signs were everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, but <laughs> there was a lot, a lot to to go that went into that. So our framing device is always the sports stuff, but there was a lot more for the mind in Right Hand Man from, which is an offering from Barrow Books. Uh, the title is actually a double entendre too, because I guess when Phil, after Phil survived his stroke, he actually had to learn to write left-handed. But he was always the right-hand man of Ted Rogers, but you know, lost the use, I guess, of his right hand in that. Uh, so that's certainly inspirational that he was able to, you know, bounce bounce back up for, you know, forgive the cliche, but you know, he he was he was buckled by this major life thing and came back. Uh, sorry to reduce that health crisis to a platitude. Anyways, we're definitely eager to have him here on for I guess what will be our last one of the calendar year, 2018. We should mention, you know, we uh, record in the reference library here in 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 tr- downtown Toronto. Uh, next week, something that's kind of right up our alley. We. Uh, the Toronto Reference Library is hosting a discussion salon called The Woke Sports Fan, uh, led by Morgan Campbell from the Toronto Star and Stacey May Fowles, author of Baseball Life Advice, who was our third ever guest on uh, Sports Lit. They will discuss how to be a socially conscious sports fan in the wake of anthem protests, concussions, and more. And the fact that they use the label anthem protest tells us how much this is needed because obviously they're inequality protests. But that's an event, December 10th, 7 to 8 p.m. in Beaton Hall. That's B-E-E-T-O-N, not, not the not the, not the homonym. Uh, which So yeah, that's an event. We felt like we should plug that because that's, uh, you know, right in the wheelhouse of what we do here on Sports Lit, Neil. Absolutely, Nate, and I can't thank the library enough for uh, hosting us here and, 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 you know, giving us this platform and this room to do this broadcast in. And on that note, we're not too far away either from One Mount Pleasant, the headquarters of Rogers, corporate, uh, the corporate headquarters of Rogers, where, of course, Phil Lind uh, makes his, uh, makes his uh, presence felt, and that's his home in terms of business. And, well, he's going to make his way over here, and we're going we're gonna to have a chat with him coming up on Sports Lit. Well, thanks for joining us, Bob and Phil. Um, as you can see, we've set this room up to make it seem as though we are in a CRTC hearing. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> Kidding aside, um, the first question is for Bob. Um, can you explain your path in the media industry from going in, into traditional media with the Star and the Globe to the point where you've gotten to now where you've done these biographies with Phil and before that with uh, with Ted Rogers? Um, I worked, at, as you say, at the, at the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, and then I uh, moved to a, a online, online portal called Canoe, and at the dot-com uh, bust in 2000, I went and worked for a PR firm, which didn't exactly work out uh, after 18 months or so. And then after that, I've just been working as a, a freelance writer and a consultant for the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 16 years. And, and what makes uh, right here, right now a good time to tell Phil's life story? From my perspective? Well, Phil's, he, he, 
you just turned 75 years old, and he's achieved a heck of a lot. And I will, I'll, I'll say this: he, the name Phil Lind does not resonate as big as Ted Rogers or Hazel McCallion to the general pu- public, but his story is just so fascinating because he is a very multi-dimensional person: business, arts and culture, a crazy sports fan. Um, but Phil, why don't you take it from there? Bill, why was right now the time to write um, the book? I, I, it was ten years, ten years of Ted's death as of yesterday. Yes. Uh, I, one of the things that really motivated me was that the millennials who work at Rogers have no idea that Rogers didn't exist 40, 50 years ago. It didn't exist. They've always thought of Rogers. They think of Rogers as. Rogers, Bell, and Tellus, they've always been there. But they haven't been there. This is a one-generation story. Um, Readers, of course, this is sports lit, so I'm just going to switch gears. Readers only need to read the first page of this book before sports is mentioned, and that's in the foreword by our current mayor, John Tory, who says, quote, Phil, this is you, his impact on Canadian sports is enormous, end quote. He then cites uh, ensuring the Jays stayed in Canada, the NFL in Toronto series and NFL Sunday ticket, and also introducing, introducing regional sports networks to Canada and the creation of Sportsnet. So with that said, could I get you to travel back in time and kind of explain what the landscape was like in media and where sports stood, if at all, at the beginning when you started? In well, the, at the, the beginning, uh, sports was always on the, the major broadcasting stations. And then uh, the CRTC licensed TSN, finally, after, after ESPN had been licensed in, in the States for years. Uh, and then, but then they said, TSN's going to be the monopoly here. That's going to be it. And uh, uh, I've talked to guys in the States, and uh, they said, no, 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 that's, we should have competition here. And uh, so I, I certainly believed that. And Ted believed that. So uh, we started in to apply. But, you know, in those days, cable being the bad guy could only own 19% of the, of the, of the, uh, the network. So even though we designed it and built it and, and uh, created it, we could only own t- uh, 19%. So, uh, but eventually the CRTC, as they always do, finally realized the right position but my god it took a while so uh, the 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 genesis for sportsnet or for competition to tsn came from an american idea then peter uh, yeah yeah myself and 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 a guy who uh, who ran the u.s sports network uh, for fox and and that was if you don't mind me asking i think it's in the book i just forget the name you mentioned somebody in the states calling you about about this, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, yeah. Peter Barton. Yeah, Peter um, I'm going to ask you, how did the Thrilla in Manila change the programming universe? Because that's a, a line from this book um, uh, that when HBO broadcast it in 1975. Well, that was the first time that, that, that Satellite and uh, was brought back live. And, and uh, uh, so that was the beginning of... of Cable, HBO. Of, of HBO, which was the forerunner of, of cable channels. Yeah. 
Now, something that just blew me away when I read it, again, as someone who didn't know all this industry stuff, was the fact that it took so long in Canada for them to allow cable operators to actually move into programming. What was the, what was the fight like that to convince the CRTC it, to see the light? It probably took 20, 25 years to allow us into programming. It's just crazy. But they, they thought that we've got to protect the Canadian broadcaster against any kind of competition. So CTV and Global were, uh, were their sacred cows and the CBC, of course. And that was it, man. I mean, and, uh, and if, you didn't, uh, if you weren't on there, you weren't on. And it was pathetic, but that was, that was the case. And how did that for how did that shape like Canadian minute? How did like that time lapse the the delay in getting that? How do you think that shaped the, the media industry in Canada? Well, good or bad? Uh, bad because it's um, I mean good because it's created some Canadian-owned program uh, program stations, but bad because it's created uh, an artificial construct, and uh, anytime artificiality rules. Um, everything, you know, the, the marketplace is not recognized, so things get screwy. Things get real screwy. Bob, I'm going to ask you a question now. Um, in terms of parallels, and, and you didn't hear the intro me and Nate recorded earlier, but we talked a lot about parallels in this book, and there's a, a parallel in the narrative between Phil and his grandfather, Johnny, I believe, uh, who hit uh, gold in the Klondike in, in 1896, which was the height of the gold rush. Uh, and that, you know, made a lot of money. Now, I wanted to know, did you, did you see a similarity in the landscape of TV in the sense of when Phil entered TV, how raw it was and new? Did you, did you see that at all? Or am I stretching that? No, I, I, I think that's a valid point. I, I, the str well, first I'll go back to what Phil had just been saying, Rogers and I guess other cable companies, but Rogers for in the in the 70s was doing programming that was so far ahead of everybody else. Uh, even the Americans were not doing a certain program, and what they were doing turned into things that we take for granted today, like like a movie channel, uh, like a country and western channel, uh, all these things that they were doing. But the, each time the CRTC said nope you got to take that off because the broadcasters would complain. So your question about parallels with, to me it was more Phil's grandfather and the gold rush and the gold rush for the cable licenses in the U.S. Mm. Not, in, not per se in Canada, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, but the U.S., because cable developed more slowly in the U.S. than in Canada, it took Ted Turner and the Super Channels to really ignite cable in the U.S. Up until that point... A, the concentration of population was closer, so therefore there wasn't as great a demand. In Canada, even Toronto, uh, you would get ghosty images from Buffalo and things like that, and people wanted pro American program. But so think of, think of Edmonton. Ed Edmonton probably couldn't get any channels, any American channels. So there was this demand, demand for cable in Canada that pushed cable in Canada about 10 years ahead of the U.S., I also, I thought uh, of a parallel when I read about the, the early days of, of Rogers and the camaraderie and, and, and the bun fights, for example, and what you see with Mark Zuckerberg in a keg stand, it, you know, with, with uh, Facebook. It, it, it almost felt similar, like those days were like what the tech startup days are kind of like yeah. now. Yeah, Wild West. <laughs> yep.
Very, very true. Now, some of the, now you obviously get into the point where, just take it to the point when Rodgers was acquiring the Blue Jays. It says there was a lot of skepticism in the, like the finance sort of community. I, I, it sort of that sort of blows my mind because you know like they have owned the team now for two decades. And we see what a you know the, the synergies that that creates. What did people not see at the time that led them to be skeptical? Well, they were skeptical, all right, and and even in the, our board for years thereafter. Uh, every almost every other meeting, someone would say, Ted. Uh, when are we going to get rid of the Blue Jays? Why, why, why do we have the Blue Jays? And uh, Ted would always turn to me and say, Phil, this is exactly the question that you want to answer. <laughs> and um, I'd uh, talk about brand and, th- and halo effect and things like that. But actually, um, you know, people were very skeptical of... Uh, I mean, Ted wanted it because he wanted to, to keep baseball in Canada, number one. And number two, he wanted it because he didn't know anything about baseball. Not a damn thing, but he knew about the business of sport. And he knew that people had to watch it live. And what better way to watch it live than uh, Rogers' cameras or Rogers' uh, receivers? Uh, you know, you, you had to have Rogers in there somewhere. So that's what he that's what he did. Um, eventually, the board finally uh, gave up uh, when, when all of a sudden somebody said, "This this franchise is worth a, a billion dollars," and everyone shut up at that point and <laughs> said, "Ooh." Uh, did someone question whether the Blue Jays were, were fitted into Rogers? Uh, I can't remember that. <laughs> Can I add one thing though yes, to that? Absolutely. If going back to 2000, what Phil said earlier that the millennials today think of Rogers as this giant, huge company. In 2000, it was a very big company, but it was also really steeped in debt. It was not an investment grade company, and therefore the Bay Street. The analysts and those sorts of people would say, why are you doing this? Baseball's a money-losing operation for you guys. And they, and they didn't realize also that because, because we'd, we'd been kiboshed with, uh, with the Videotron takeover, Ted was awarded $150 million and $125 million in breakup fees. And one thing about Ted Rogers is if if you're standing still, if you were playing it like you like yesterday, right. you were standing still. You were losing. You were losing ground. So, 125 million bucks. Let's spend it. Let's <laughs> let's grow the company. That's what he was always doing: growing the company. Spending money to make money. You bet. I think it was around 2001, one, <coughs> two as well. I think MLB Commissioner Bud Selig said, "Well, all digital revenue was." Uh, the MLB made a lot of rules about digital revenue. How did that help with growing the equity in the Blue Jays? Well, he, uh, Paul Beeson actually set up the uh, BAM uh, baseball asset man or baseball baseball advanced media advanced media advanced media yeah and. Uh, it, it was uh, a little slow to take off, but boy, did it take off. And uh, 
it's it's uh, worth billions and billions of dollars now. So, uh, and uh, you know, in digital rights, I mean, we had the digital rights because we had the uh, the the stadium, we had the broadcast network, and we owned the team. So. W- they couldn't say to us, well, you know, we have to clear it through somebody else. We had everything. So we, had, we were the first digital broadcasters on with baseball for years before any other team in baseball had it. It's interesting that you mentioned Videotron uh, inadvertently helping you guys by the yeah. Blue Jays. But uh, with the Rogers Hockey Night deal, a French company directly helped get those rights in TVR, correct? Absolutely. We needed that. Uh, we needed that portion, and uh, we got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears a little here and, and, and get directly into the fandom of sports, if you don't mind. And I'm no Mildred Schwab, but allow me to challenge you a little bit here, Phil. And, and I, w- I would say a lot of fans would, would look at the current Blue Jays and say they had a winning formula with Paul Beeston and Alex Anthopoulos. And both played very nice on their way out. But were they shown the door so Rodgers could have more control over the team? No. <laughs> okay. We, we love Paul and we loved Alex. Uh, and we still do. And um, they are, uh, they are um, central. Uh, they've always been central to the Blue Jays. Um, well, uh, Paul, Paul retired. And um, and was and uh, Mark was brought in, and uh, Mark offered Alex a, you know the general managership, but Alex said, um, "Sounds like sounds sounds to me like Mark is the general manager too. So he's uh, I I I don't I, I don't want to work under those circumstances." But it was all fairly genial, and uh, Alex went off to the Dodgers, and now, of course, is this spectacular uh, uh, performer at the Atlanta Braves. So now Mark, has, uh, Mark with, with Ross Atkins, uh, are, uh, they've struggled, but uh, I think they're, they're going to bring us uh, a, a winning baseball team, but it's, it's taken a couple of years. And I, I might add, too, that, that Phil and Paul Beeson are still quite close. They're good friends. Paul was at Phil's uh, birthday party not that long ago. Happy birthday, Phil. I did not know your birthday was recently. Uh, that, that's uh, not that long ago. Uh, Bob, I actually got to ask you a question quickly uh, regarding Paul, Paul Godfrey, uh, who's also mentioned in the book. Um, do you have any personal thoughts, because uh, you're a former member of the print media, um, of... Um, of what uh, Paul is doing right now at the helm of Post Media, and you may not have any thoughts, and that's fair too. Well, no, I don't have any serious thoughts. I, I just, I know he's taken some bonuses while laying people off, which, and a lot of those people that he laid off were former colleagues of mine. But that's, it's a tough, it's a tough racket nowadays. Well, certainly uh, for those that haven't read the book, there's some interesting points in there about Paul. I'll let you read the book to find those out. Go ahead, Nate. Indeed. Uh, now, by coincidence, we're talking about you know anniversaries and whatnot. But this is actually it was ten years ago this week. The first Bills Toronto series regular season game was played in Toronto, and I think about four years ago this week that it was sort of it ran its course. 
Uh, Bob, I just wonder for your perspective, uh, what what do you think? Why what, what, it played out the way it did? Well, this is where Phil and I have divergent divergent views on That's it. That's great. <laughs> I I happen to think that Ontario, the GTA, loves the NFL, but they don't love the Bills. They 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 like. They're Steelers fans, or Browns fans, or Dolphins fans, or Cowboys fans, and I just don't think they were they they cared about the Buffalo Bills, in my opinion. Well, in my defense, <laughs> um, first of all, the uh, you know the long-term plan was to get the Bills to Toronto, so you have to do it in whatever way you think is possible. Ted Rogers and, uh, and Ralph Wilson had a love affair. They were a real bromance. <laughs> and uh, and uh, if if Ted and uh, Ralph were were uh, still alive, I mean, it, it, let me put it this way: Ralph died, and then uh, Ted died. Uh, unfortunately, no, it was the other way around. Huh? It was the other way around. Yeah, but no, but that's right. But what I wanted to say, sorry, I meant that. What I wanted to say is that um, that if if uh, if Rogers had been alive when when Wilson's estate was was being settled, uh, that might have been a different story. Uh, but in any case, you know. Toronto has to have an NFL team. It it just has to. It's the fourth largest population base in North America. For God's sakes, we have to have an NFL team here. I'm and sure. uh, Canada, by and large, except for Calgary, Edmonton and Regina, maybe Winnipeg, possibly Ottawa. I mean, this is an NFL uh, community now. And... Toronto will never go back to the CFL. Never. It, it's all NFL and Vancouver as well. Now, I'll add too that in Phil's defense, that you got hit with a lot of bad luck with that series because they were lousy games. They were lousy Bills teams. That's right. They were lousy games. They were lousy Bills teams, and they were and it, we were, they were at the end of the season. So they were already Bills were out of it already when they came up here to play. And and actually, a lousy uh, Bill's attitude. Yeah, that's true. Too. Because, you know, you, you looked at anything to to uh, be an, an excuse. And uh, in this case, uh, one or two of the players said, well, Toronto doesn't act like uh, Buffalo. It doesn't have a, you know, winning, uh, you know, they, they don't roar. Enough, and uh, actually, you know, they don't. But because they were such, they were mediocre teams. Why would they roar? Did, now, as someone who spent so much time in the United States with with work, especially in the '80s, like, how much were you surprised that there was that sort of, I guess, Canadian U.S. kind of culture clash with that? I think if we'd had the Pittsburgh Steelers up here. Everyone would have been cheering madly. I mean, they wanted a winning team. Everybody wants a winning team. It's not. It's, it's not Canada and the U.S. I mean, they're they're the mind. I mean, they're they're the same. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get you to travel back in a second to 
kind of get into how the whole series started and your role in it, but I want to examine authenticity because I thought that one might have been one of the reasons why the the games didn't succeed here because a lot of people like going to Ralph Wilson Stadium and tailgating and a lot of people said, hey, it was a kind of a corporate environment here when when um, you know Rogers hosted those Rogers Center hosted those Bills games. Do you think authenticity had anything to do with it? Well, I mean, I guess if you like tailgating down at uh, Ralph Wilson Stadium, I don't know. I I, I didn't. But um, this this was not a corporate thing in Canada. It was the law in Canada. Mm-hmm. They we, in the United States. Um, they the police officers wave these guys off, uh, wave these guys onto the throughway and everything. They're just absolutely plastered. <laughs> uh, in Canada, you wouldn't have the same sort of situation. You can't drink in public and things like that. I mean, it's a, it's a different. We have different laws in Canada, and uh, we have different ways of deporting ourselves. You talked about uh, Ralph and Ted and, and how and their relationship and kind of how there could have been a chance had uh, had Ted uh, been alive to get the team here. Um, but uh, I want to I lost train lost my train of thought. I was going to ask you what was I going to ask you? I can't believe I lost my train of thought. Even even if even if we hadn't even if Ted hadn't have uh, got the bills. He would have been competitive, and he could have, and 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 he would have been respected by the owners, the, by the other team owners, and they would have made sure that Ted was first and front and center whenever any any transaction came about. Neat. Yeah, indeed. I'm just flashing back on my tailgating experience at Ralph Wilson. Someone's just like, "Yeah, we'll be in this parking lot." And, it's so it's just kind of a free for all. I'm like, wow, this is like you know, it's, it's like very tribal. But go on. I know what I wanted to ask. I was going to get you to travel back and explain how you you know the whole Bills in Toronto series started and your involvement with that. <coughs> well, um, we had uh, long wanted an NFL franchise, and and uh, Buffalo was looking pretty shaky at the time, and uh, and, and so we went down and. Uh, Talked to the, their people in in Buffalo and Detroit and uh, arranged this this uh, this series in Canada. It didn't turn out, but um, I, I don't I don't regret it. Uh, and uh, frankly, I'm still of the opinion that that we are going to have an NFL team here. I think a lot of people will be happy to hear that. Um, I'm going to switch gears again to the, the Rogers deal with for the NHL broadcasting rights. Um, we had David Schultz, who, Bob, you probably know, um, on Sports Lit uh, probably two months ago. And um, I want to ask you, because um, there's been a lot of debate about it, was it a good deal? Oh, sure, it's a good deal, but it's not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, fair, it's a fair deal. If no Canadian teams are are in the playoffs, it's a great deal if Canadian teams are in the playoffs. And it doesn't matter which team. Uh, and the more the merrier, and the deeper they get into the into the uh, the playoffs, the better. And and uh, boy, it looks like 
it's going to be a good year this year. <laughs> <laughs> the, the question I asked David, and I, I'm actually I'm thrilled to ask you because you probably have a better answer than David, uh, just because you're on the inside and he's he's on the outside. Now I'm talking about David Schultz. And how, how, I mean, most people will say Canada has a conservative business culture. How does Keith Pelley and Scott Moore and whoever else is involved convince a, a stalwart, a behemoth like Rogers to shell out this kind of money? Well, it, because we had shelled out uh, to, to NFL and NHL rights before, uh, on uh, one uh, more than one occasion, M remember, Sportsnet was built on the fact that um, the NHL was uh, was there. It, it was not even launched at the time. It was licensed but not launched, and it was going to be fairly tricky for us to get going. And all of a sudden, Bettman called me up one day and said, How, well, "Would you like the NFL, uh, the NHL rights?" And I said, "You bet." And um, one thing led to another, and we, we, we got them. And, and with, with that, with that one, one action, we got Sportsnet launched. And so we'd already, we, we'd already stepped up to the plate. And that was in 1998, right, when you launched it the first time. But when you saw a figure like $5.2 billion, I mean, did that, I mean, what was your reaction when you saw that? It's a number. That's all. <laughs> okay. I, I remember back in '98. I was at the Globe's report on business as a as yeah. a reporter, and when when news broke about you getting uh, about Rogers getting the uh, NHL rights, it moved the stock and significantly. Although the stock was not worth very much back then, <laughs> but it did. It, it was big news on. So they so Rogers and or Phil and Rogers had history with Gary Bettman. Um, from a personal perspective, you were there when Rogers was broadcasting pay-per-view San Antonio Spurs games. So, this Rod getting Hockey Night in Canada must have been a feather in the cap, and possibly a bit of pride to stick it to longtime rival Bell. I mean, did you feel? Was there any of that? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. And I sort of now I obviously you know I what I got really a lot from the book was a lot about you know, leadership and, and workplace culture. I, I, wanted, I wondered, Phil, if you could sort of talk about how you look, spotted soft, what, I think you called it soft skills in people and emotional intelligence. emotional intelligence. How much of that do you think that played into the fact people always recognized too, that you had a, a great ability to sort of, you know, recognize the talents of women when at a time when many people didn't? Well, look the other way, first, I I, I'll talk about work-life balance for a second. We, we had a, a conference in, uh, in Vancouver, and um, Ted and I were on the stage, and, and Philippe de Gaspé, Bobian's wife, asked Ted, Ted, could you explain what, what your feeling is, re-work-life balance? And Ted was, what's work-life balance? <laughs> I don't understand what work-life balance is. And now Ted, uh, Ted worked. It was a, just a, a tremendous uh, a workaholic. He uh, he worked 15 hours a day every day of his life. So I mean, he was uh, he was not the uh, the model for work-life balance. Put it that way. Um, but soft skills. Uh, 
Yeah, you, you need that. You need that to, to understand people and to get the best out of them, for sure. And did that just, like, did you think that was, uh, I guess, something that was, was why your people sort of hailed you for being I, inclusive, I, being I, ahead of your time? With I that? think uh, I think so, and I was uh, way ahead in terms of having uh, women. Uh, um, we had Carol Taylor on our board and uh, several others. I mean, Pat Carney. I mean, great, strong women who were uh, who really first-class uh, contributors. Speaking of strong women, uh, you're a, a lifelong, I'm, I'm getting somewhere with this, you're a lifelong fan of the Cleveland Browns, yeah. and we all heard, and you knew the late Art Modell, we heard this crazy rumor about Condoleezza Rice going to the to the Browns. Now, we know she's not going to be the head coach, but would you like to see someone like Condoleezza be involved with the Browns in a corporate perspective? Uh, not necessarily. Um, <laughs> Uh, Condoleezza, I, I, I don't really, uh, I, I don't have as much regard for her as I, uh, as I would say other, other women. Um, she's, uh, she's a very right-wing person and, um, and, uh, I think, uh, I mean, I heard this story about Condoleezza the other day that, uh, really, um, sort of solidified my... When when George H. W. Bush um, uh, when they started tearing down the Berlin Wall, yeah, uh, Condoleezza Rice burst into the room and said, "Come on, let's get on a plane. Let's go to Berlin. Let's let's celebrate this and everything." And George, and, uh, George w., H. W. Bush said, uh, "No, no, 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 no." Let's let it lie. Let's, I mean, this is going to happen anyway. Let's not stir up the, the pot here. Let's just let things go. And that was the right, I think, the right, the right move. If, if he uh, stormed into Berlin and said, uh, you see, uh, you guys are wrong and we're right, I mean, it would have ex exacerbated tensions right away. Um, I wanted to ask you, this has to do with politics, actually. You talk about the parallels between sports teams and business teams, but you point out that in politics, um, you know, a, well, in, in sports and business, only a player worthy can step into the arena, whereas in politics, you may have, you know, it, it's not necessarily the case. Could you explain that? Uh... I, I think you are you referring to the point like yeah. on the campaign. Well, I think there's a point there where, where 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 a point is made that sports teams and business teams, you, you know, no one can let the other guy down. And there's no hangers on. Whereas in politics, right. there is. Yeah, I don't think Phil ever uh, indicated that people who step into the ring and and, and run for office. No, he, no, I, no, he's no, talking, no, he's I, talking about the, yeah, the bag the, man the, the, and people yeah, like that. Yeah, the, yeah, periphery. Yeah, exactly. Hangers on. Well. There's a lot of that in politics. Let's, let's put it that way. Well, you know what? I've got um, I've got one uh, one last question here. But before, well, you can go too. But before I do that, we like to give a gift to our our guests. So first, Bob, I'm going to give you your gift for coming on the show today. <laughs> this is uh, Dan Robson, who was on our podcast. That's the oh. Johnny Bauer. Um, biography or, oh, nice. auto, or biography? Not he biography. lived in Mississauga, where I live. 
there you go so enjoy that and and phil we know um you're obviously you know politics and sport are are your interests and so we're i was racking my brains what do i give the guy that uh you know has everything so um we donated uh, $25 to the Phil Lynn Chair United, in United States Politics and Representation Endowment. So there you go. At uh, UBC. At UBC, yes. Yeah, thank uh, you. No problem. Uh, I wish the taxable receipt was in your name. Unfortunately, it's in my name. But that's, just, <laughs> that's just proof that we did it. But um, you can throw it out after if you want. Um, and anyway, go ahead, Nate. Uh, now, I wanted to, there's one question I did want to ask about Ted Rogers and, and a term that I you used i think it was something called permanent dissatisfaction what did that what did that concept embody and is it a good thing is it an overall good thing yeah it's a good thing because ted was never satisfied with anything ever um no matter how good it was it was never good enough and uh that that you know has its own sort of frustrations but you know in terms of cable and wireless customer service, we're not good enough. And Ted knew that. He always said we weren't good enough, and 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 he put pushed and pushed to get things better. And we're still doing that. Um, so you've got to have uh, a lot of dissatisfaction uh, because otherwise, if you're satisfied, then then you quit. And uh, and that's not Ted Rogers. He he just wanted to get get bigger and better. But he, he wanted he wanted to make sure that people were happy. And um, and I don't think they're all that happy yet. So <laughs> now on a personal level, I I what something that hit home to me was when you talked about your stroke. Uh, I had a grandparent grandparent on each side of the fam family who who had one. I don't, and I, I really took away from it that you can never really understand what the person has gone through, but yes. you write about it. Uh, what points do you hope stay with readers that what they appreciate most about what you call that massive intervention in your life? Well, it is, uh, you know, I never wish a stroke on anyone. It, it, it is an, a life altering experience, especially when you have a uh, bad one, like I did. Like I, you, I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. I had to, um, I couldn't write, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't speak. Um, so getting, getting back is, uh, is, is hard to do. And it's, um, and it, it involves not just you, but a lot of people around you, the people that, that, that support you and help you and, and, um, and that's how you that's how you make it but uh it's tough it's tough uh bob i want to ask you um just uh it's usually a question we ask off the top but i'll ask it now uh could you kind of go through the process of writing this book with phil you know how it went about uh was it in person over the phone how long it took that type of thing um i would go to phil's apartment i think virtually every meeting was at at your condo a couple in your office maybe and uh um we never did anything over the phone although i did interview other people who are in the book over over the phone people in vancouver and and uh, oregon and uh chicago um then i would uh oh, oh 
we'd also have other people come to his apartment when we were and which really helped the process i think because we kept bouncing things were bouncing off everybody and i would go home and i would i I would record them all and i download the recording on my computer and then i'd go through it and make a loose transcription and i found that during the writing process when i would go back to those interviews we were laughing all the time. It was it was fun, and I would start laughing. And my wife sometimes would she'd hear me in my office laughing, and she'd say, "Who are you talking to? Who are you?" Ta-? And I said, "I'm just like Ken Engelhart or Tony Viner, Colin. They all got me like re-listening to those interviews. Just got me laughing. We had we did have a lot of fun. Oh yeah, we had a great deal. Well, it was definitely a lot of uh, fun to read it, especially as me and Nate say. We didn't always know the the business aspect of what was going on, so that was particularly enjoyable. And I would ask you both: Is there anything um, you'd like to add before we close out here? No. Well, the, I would say to your earlier question about uh, to, to Phil, what can people take away from the book? I th- his mother's advice of never giving up. I think that's if you have a stroke or my my wife's mother has had a stroke and and. It's that aspect that, that you don't give up and that your life after a stroke, as Phil has shown, uh, there's purpose in your life and there's things that you, it, it doesn't just end. It's not, a, it's, not, not, it's not necessarily a waiting period until the ultimate end. So, and he, he wouldn't say it because he hates, he hates being a poster child uh, for disability or, or stroke victims. He hates those words, but he is. And, and there's a lot of people who view him that way. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks.